Dean, come on up. Give us a report of how things are going in the ministry. And I know it's been a crazy year with the camp and everything else because of COVID, but it's so good to see you today and to have you guys and your family and uh, share with us what's going on, what the Lord's doing. Well, thank you very much for the time this morning, uh, just to get you up to date on what we're doing up uh, next to Glacier National Park on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation. Uh, first of all, I would say uh, we would not be running camp the way we ran it the last 15 years without this church and their support, putting up buildings, putting roofs on buildings, uh, running electric between the buildings, even though we don't have electric. Uh, we ran on a generator, bringing the generator up uh, to help us run it for so many years. So thank you so much uh, for helping us get it started, uh, getting it up and running, and then your continued support. We're grateful. So basically we run four weeks of summer camp for kids on the Blackfeet Reservation out of Browning. We're about 20 minutes outside of town, right up against Glacier National Park. And it's a great setting. And over the years, uh, kids have come to Christ there. Uh, and so we're grateful for the opportunity to share the gospel with the kids on the res. They don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to be bussed off the reservation. It's their, basically their own home area. And so we felt that, that is, that's always been a benefit to be where we're located. I'm here with my wife, and number two, Joel, and number four, Jonathan, and number five, Elizabeth. Number, let's see, that's one and three are at home working. And uh, David, our middle son, is going to be married, Lord willing, next summer. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, we had had to take a year off last year with COVID. Uh, it was pretty rough. We knew it was going to be the long-term uh, wait for the reservation. Uh, when articles came out, there was an article in the Great Falls Tribune, uh, and there were several Blackfeet that were interviewed in that newspaper article that said that COVID was uh, smallpox 2.0, and it was white man bringing the disease. And so... You know, that makes it difficult. One of our, uh, the pastors that helps us uh, bring kids to the camp, he got COVID very early. And he has a Baptist church right on, right in Browning. And so, you know, that was not good public relations either uh, because he had gone to a wedding in Michigan, brought it back with him. And so uh, we just thought even this summer, they just opened their schools at the end of the year. And uh, the things that we would be required to do wouldn't make it even look like camp. No overnights. We still needed social distancing, six feet, which is almost impossible in our little lodge. Um, maybe if we had four or five kids show up. Uh, masks, serving food would, would have been very difficult. So we just felt like, Lord, we're going to wait another year when everything opens back up and these people aren't afraid anymore to be able to come back to camp. Uh, we did open it this year just so that it looks like someone is around. Uh, we think that helps us for security reasons long term. Um, but we're looking forward to next summer 
and jumping back in. We finished 15 years, and so we're grateful uh, for your support in helping us do that for that many years up there. Uh, an exciting thing we're looking forward to in uh, September is we got a call from a neighbor who brought the, bought the property about three years ago from a man that wanted to basically set up a cult right next to us. So we prayed for that for a long time that that would not happen, and it didn't. And this gal called us and said, we're trying to get electric into the property. Uh, and they're right across the road, and so she's done all the legwork. Um, and at that point, we were excited, thinking it could happen as early as June this year. But uh, she says she's had to run into some environmental studies now, and so she's still hoping, though, that September... And, of course, that changes everything. Uh, to, to walk into camp and to flip a switch on and to actually have uh, running water then without turning the generator on. The water tanks worked great. I'm not going to complain, Lord. The water tank that we put on the hill, we fill it during the day, and then everybody can flush toilets at night. But to not have to worry about that, to not have to do that, to flip a switch on uh, when we start up camp uh, every spring would be absolutely amazing. And so uh, we are... Uh, the funds that we get from you guys right now, we're probably pushing towards helping to fund that electric line that they're going to bring in. So we're super grateful. And um, again, we're uh, thrilled for the opportunity to be down here and share with you guys. And the 15 years uh, is a big thanks to you and your support and uh, as partners with us in that ministry on the Blackfeet Reservation. So we're grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Dean. It's hard to believe it's 15 years. That is crazy. And uh, praise the Lord for the faithfulness up there on the Blackfoot Indian Reservation, for the lives that have changed, the ministry that God has given to uh, Dean and his family up there in that place. It's so important as a church, not only that we write checks and send checks to our missionaries, but that we remember to pray for them. It's so easy for us to become wrapped up in our own lives here, things that are going on in our lives that we forget. So as we go to prayer today, let's just spend a few minutes together as a body praying for the work up there. Let's do that together. You join me at the throne of grace. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless, uh, to, to prosper the gospel as it goes forth among the Blackfeet people. Okay, and then following that, uh, Dave is going to come and read to us the scripture this morning, and then Matt's going to come back and lead us in worship, and while we're singing today, we'll be taking the offering at that time. Let's go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you today. We thank you that your word is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces. It shows us our need. Father, we thank you that your word is not bound, but that it accomplishes the purpose you send it forth to do. 
And so, Father, for a minute here this morning, we we pray for the Blackfoot people in northern Montana. Lord, we lift them before you. Lord, no doubt there are vestiges in their minds of wrongs that were done, sometimes by Christian people in the history of our country, that perhaps, Father, have put a blight on the preaching of the gospel. Lord, we don't pass blame. We know that we all are imperfect people, and though our country is a great land, yet nevertheless, it is not perfect. We ask your forgiveness for wrongs that were done. And Father, we pray that nothing that was done would serve as a hindrance to what you can yet accomplish. Father, I pray for Marty Bach that is a pastor up there, that as he works week by week faithfully there, that, Lord, you would minister through him, that, Lord, you would give him encouragement. I pray for Dean, his wife, his family, that, Lord, over these 15 years, these people that rub shoulders with them would see their faithfulness, their love, their commitment, And that, Father, they would yearn and long to know the one true God, to experience grace. Father, may generations to come be blessed because of the sacrifices that the Landises have made. Thank you for them. Lord, give them wisdom as they look at steps ahead in their life and ministry transitions that go on in their life. Meet every one of their physical needs, we pray. Bless them. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. David, you come. Good morning. The scripture reading is First Peter. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy.
and go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 today. We're going to continue studying. We're going to, Lord willing, finish up, primarily finish up this chapter where we have been digging deep into the word concerning the sovereignty of God, the work of the potter, how he forms us, he molds us, he makes us. One thing I do want to mention to you that I didn't take the time to do in prayer needs um, wanting to focus instead on praying for uh, the ministry of the camp up in um, northern Montana. But be in prayer this week for uh, Sue Johnston and the family down in St. George. Of course, Howard went home to be with the Lord this past week, and then Sue got the COVID and was very ill with that, doing a lot better now. Uh, spoke with her yesterday, Lord willing, 
Um, the funeral will be this weekend, this coming weekend. And so appreciate your prayers as we travel down to St. George uh, to be involved in that funeral service down there. And um, But let's really pray specifically for Sue, for all the kids, the grandkids. Um, difficult time, obviously, for them in their lives. Howard is a great blessing, not only to us in this church, but to many, many people. And God used him greatly in his life here. And uh, we are so thankful for the legacy that Howard uh, has left. A truly a remarkable man of faith, and we, we thank the Lord for his life. We're kind of bringing this chapter on the sovereignty of God to an apex as we come to some concluding remarks that the Apostle Paul brings into the discussion. He's been setting the sovereignty of God in the context of the nation of Israel. And really kind of looking at the question, why did Israel reject their Messiah? Was it that the word of God had failed? God had made promises. God had made prophecies. Did they fail? And what we see in this chapter, no, God was weaving together a story, and God had a plan, and he was working Israel's rejection of their Messiah into the bigger plan in the scope of redemption, of bringing the message of redemption and salvation, not only to the Jewish people, but to all the nations. Paul builds on that thought as we get to the end of the chapter. As we get into these verses, we're going to take some protracted time to read these verses, and I'll throw some explanation in as we go. The Apostle Paul answered two objections that we immediately raise to this teaching that God is sovereign. We object. We say God is unjust. If God is sovereign and God makes choices, if God elects, then somehow that's unjust. It's not fair. The second thing, the second objection that our natural mind immediately raises to that teaching is, well, then why does God hold me responsible? Why does God hold me responsible? And that is where we went into the analogy of the potter. And he says, the potter has power. He has the right over the clay to make it into a vessel for an honorable use or dishonorable. From that, notice what he says as we go along. In verse 23, we jump in midstream. In order to make known the riches of his glory upon us, the vessels these clay pots, these vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not only out of the Jewish ethnic people, although there the gospel started, not only out of them, but also out of who? All the Gentiles, all the nations. And then he goes and he shows in some quotes 
how this was foreseen in the Old Testament by the prophets. So he goes to the book of Hosea. Remember with me the story of Hosea. The story of Hosea is the story of a prophet who has married a woman who goes into prostitution and then he redeems her from it. And this loving story of how this man, Hosea, loves his wife and brings her back to himself. They have had children. One of those children, by the command of God, was named, kids be glad nobody's named you this, Lo-Ruhama. Lo-Ruhama. Lo-Ruhama means not my people. The other child, Lo-Ami. Lo-Ami. Not my people. And so he quotes this story from the book of Hosea. Look what he says. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, us Gentile peoples, the ethnic groups of the earth, not the Jewish people, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. And Isaiah, now he goes to the book of Isaiah, and he shows us again how Isaiah was foreseeing this thing of all the nations coming to God, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Stop for a minute. That harkens back to God's original promise to Abraham. Abraham and Sarah have no children. But God has made a promise. And God took Abraham out from the tent into the clear night air of the desert and there is no light pollution, right? And he can see all the stars, the panoply of the heavens, the Big Dipper, North Star, Orion. And as he looks at them, God says to him, your offspring will be innumerable like the stars and like the sand of the sea. And God fulfilled that. And so Isaiah says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be eternally saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence. Formal, judicial language, a verdict. Not from the Supreme Court, not from SCOTUS. From the throne of the universe, God passed a sentence. God made a verdict. 
And he says here, the Lord will carry out his verdict upon the earth. And he will do so fully, and he will do so without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a seed. Notice the word, I'm speaking from preaching from the ESV, it's the word offspring. In some translations, it uses the word seed. The Greek word there is the word seed. And we understand that that's meaning offspring, but I think the word seed is very important for the truth that is being conveyed here. And we'll go into that in a little bit later. He says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us some seed, we would have been like Sodom, and we would have become like Gomorrah. Go back in your mind to the book of Genesis. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They had, son they had sinned and done abominable things in the sight of God. And God looked upon their sin, and his wrath was stirred, and he left them no seed. He wiped it clean. In other words, what we would say from this is, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the only ones that got out of there were who? Lot, his wife, who turned to a pillar of salt because she turned back and was looking and longing for the culture that was there, the children. And they were not of the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were transplants into it. So what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Everybody there died. They're gone. And what he is saying, Isaiah is saying here, unless the Lord had in mercy and grace given a seed, a remnant for Israel to continue, and it was purely of grace, they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, there'd be no Jews today. They'd have been gone. But God fulfilled his word. And he kept his covenant, and he kept the seed. Now keep going. Verse 30. Paul is now going to bring this entire thought to a conclusion with a question. So what do we say? Okay, we read all this stuff. We think about the sovereignty of God. We think about the rejection of Israel. What does all this mean? What do we then say? What are we to conclude from this? Notice what he says. Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness attained it. But what is that righteousness? It's not their own. It is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who was pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness, they never succeeded in reaching that law. As we saw earlier, all through the book of Romans... The law points out our sin. It does not enable us to be righteous. Why? They did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based upon the works, so they, and I want you to notice this, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. 
As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. We thank you for your word. Bless it, Father. Holy Spirit, open it before us today. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin with a caution. The caution I want us to think about arises from objection number two. Objection number two, (coughs) excuse me. I don't know about you, but this smoke is better than a barbecue, isn't it? It gets my lungs anymore. So if I have to hack a little bit through this, forgive me, we'll blame California. I imagine that's where all good things come from. Okay, here's the caution. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Here's my caution. We are tempted. Every one of us is tempted to go into this ditch, straight and narrow, walk on that road, right? What we tend to do as individuals and believers is to fall into the ditch on one side or the other. When we study the sovereignty of God and these doctrines, we are tempted to fall into the ditch. Here's the ditch we're tempted to fall into. Since God is sovereign, which he is, since his will can never be thwarted, which is true, then my kids are either elect or they're not. What does it matter? My neighbor is either elect or not. Why tell him? Why be faithful? Why evangelize? This is the caution. Is God sovereign? Yes. Has God put responsibility on us, not only to individually believe, as we see at the end of this chapter, when he says to us, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. My friend, if you are in the hearing of my voice this morning and the Holy Spirit is tugging at you, you, in order to be saved, must believe. If you do not, you will be damned. And God will fully, without delay, bring his sentence. You must believe. My friend, we are responsible to share the good news. We are responsible to pray. We are responsible to make sacrifice. And if we do not, think with me of the book of Ezekiel. God says in the book of Ezekiel, to Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman on the wall. If you cry out and you warn the people If they do not listen to you, their blood is on their own head. If you do not warn them, and they are destroyed, what does he say? I will require their sin at them, but their blood, what does he say? I will hold against you. We are responsible. Parent. 
Don't listen to this message on the Word of God and then check out on your responsibility. Don't check out when you think about the sovereignty of God and think, well, if God's chosen my kid, he's chosen my kid. My friend, listen, God says to you, you have a responsibility to bring up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We are responsible. Do not, please, do not sacrifice your children on the altar of personal convenience and ease. We are responsible. We talked about the mystery of this last week. That God ultimately does not explain these things. Notice some questions. There are two questions I want to wrestle with from the text this morning. The first one is concerning the remnant. The second one concerns the stone. At the end of the chapter, he talks about a stone being laid in Zion. Earlier, he says, through Isaiah, he quoting from Isaiah, says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And then he says, in verse 29, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, had not left us some seed, then we would be like Sodom <coughs> and we would be like Gomorrah. What does this mean? When we get to chapter 11, he's going to talk about a remnant again. Sometimes we hear Christians talking about remnants. Sometimes you hear quilters talking about remnants. Right? They go to the store and they buy remnants. What's remnants? It's kind of like leftovers there, isn't it? Somebody did a job and they had some remnants. And they're selling them. Leftovers. Remnants from the feed are only good for maybe two days, right? After that, all of a sudden it gets tiring. But leftovers. Sometimes we think of it leftovers. Sometimes we think we should think of the word a remnant as something that is chosen and set aside. Something that is chosen and set aside. He talks about this in chapter 11. We'll look at it later when we get through there in our study when he's talking about Elijah and how Elijah says of himself, I'm the only one left. Here he is up on Mount Carmel, all the prophets of Baal, and after that he says, there's no one else, it's just me. And God says, no, there are thousands who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And they are a remnant chosen people that God preserved. Here's what I want us to think about. If you plant a garden or you're a farmer, you have to plant seed, don't you? Where do you get your seed? Feed store, bomb gars, tractor supply, whatever. You go and you buy it. You get your seed. You plant it. In the ancient world, they didn't do it that way. What did they do? They brought in their harvest one year, and then they chose a portion, a remnant. They set it aside as a seed. They ate this. They sold some, but they kept a remnant. Why? So that next year they had something to plant. Because they had to eat. Now here's what I want us to think about. 
Sometimes we as Christians talk about remnants. You know, the, the few, the proud, the remnants. You know, the, the faithful Christians, everybody else apostatizes, everybody else in the church is going away, hey, you know, it's all going to hell in a handbag. But we're the remnant. We're the ones. Why does God save a remnant? To plant you in the dirt because you're seed. He doesn't just save you in order to save you. He saved you to get your kids, to get your grandkids, to get their grandkids. Your seed to be planted. We need to look at a remnant that way, my friend. It's not like God is just saving the few. No, what is God doing? Why did God save his remnant of Israel? So that they could bring forth a new harvest. So God could do something new. And so it is with us. That's why he expects faithfulness of us. Remember what Jesus said? Unless a kernel of wheat, a seed, falls into the ground and what? Dies. It abides alone. But when it dies, it brings forth fruit. You were saved. Not just so God would get your little measly neck into heaven. And mine. God saved you so you would die to self and your life would be a planted seed to bring forth a harvest for his glory. That's what he's getting at here. That's what God was doing with the Gentile nations. He then goes into some questions. Let's look at these questions. What is, oh, we already asked that one. Here's the question. I, I mean, this one stumped me. Not stumped me, that's not the word, but I had to really deal with it this week. Why would God lay a stone to make men stumble in Zion? Notice what he says. He doesn't say, behold, Satan is laying in Zion a stone over which men stumble. Who is doing this? Who? God! Why? Why would God lay a stone to make men stumble in Zion? We're going to get in chapter 14. What does Paul say? Chapter 14? Paul says, I will not eat meat if it what? Makes my brother stumble. How do you put that together? Here's another one. Think about this one. Jesus was pretty offensive. And a lot of times it didn't seem like it bothered him that much. In fact, I would suggest to you, if you read the Gospels really closely, 
you will find that many times Jesus intentionally is this. His disciples are walking on the common footpath into the city on the Sabbath day. And as they are walking on the common footpath, on either side of them are fields of grain. I always plant some grain. I usually put it up as hay, so I don't let it go all the way to maturity to set it up to be grain and to be in a silo. I put it up as hay, grain hay. Grain goes through a process, doesn't it? It gets into the head. It fills with milk. And in that stage, it is very soft. You take a, pick one and you, you know, push on it, and it's like popping a pimple. Out comes the, that was gross. It's like the milk comes out. Man, Amy must have put that in my notes. Blame her. Sorry, dear. You know, it's, it's soft. But then it dries and hardens in the sun, and it's very firm. His disciples are walking on the common footpath, and it, the grain is at the stage where it's ready to be harvested, and they're just plucking it with their hands, and putting it in their mouth, and they're chewing on it. Maybe like you would eat sunflower seeds. <sighs> it tells us in the text the Jews were offended. You're working on the Sabbath. In another story, a man comes to Jesus with a withered hand and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. And they were offended. And what did Jesus say? Your donkey falls in the ditch and it happens to be on the Sabbath, you still get it out of the ditch. One day, the Pharisees see his disciples eating with unwashed hands. Not a good thing to do with hygiene, kids, right? Wash your hands. But that's not what this is about in the story. This is about ceremonial cleanliness. And the Pharisees see this, and these guys haven't done this ceremonial thing where they let the water come dripping off their, you know, their elbows, and they you know, do it in a very ceremonial way before men to be seen of men. And they're all offended. Jesus says, guys, you're getting it completely wrong. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. And he goes to the heart of the issue. And what you see in the story, this is amazing to me. Jesus specifically uses offense to get people off the fence. So what does this mean? How does this go together? Let's think about some questions here. So what is Zion? Talk about that. What does it mean to be offended? And um, let's just think about this for a minute. First of all, what is Zion? He says here, I am laying in Zion. When I say Zion, most of you are thinking of a national park down in Utah. Okay, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about Zion when you read the Bible. Zion was a geographical location specifically tied to Jerusalem. 
the first time it is used is when David conquers the hill of Zion and he takes it from the Jebusites and the city of David is founded there. The word Zion comes from a Hebrew term which means a fortress. It then, going into the rest of the scripture, begins to picture and be tied specifically to the Temple Mount. And from that, it begins to be used to picture the people of God. Zion. Why would God lay in Zion, in the middle of his people, why would God put a stone in the way that would cause men to trip? What does it mean to be offended? What does it mean to be offended? We live in a culture of offense, don't we? Everybody gets offended, you know. Leave your car idling in the winter, especially if it's a diesel, and do so in the wrong place, you know. It's offensive. Eat a steak, or you use a plastic straw. (laughs) All kinds of things can be offensive to people. When we say that, when we use the word in our way of thinking, what are we thinking of? We are somehow thinking of it like this. My feelings are hurt. You violated my sensibilities, my sensitivities. You know, I have these sensitivities, and, and, and you violated them. You know, when Paul says here, I'm not going to put an offense in front of somebody, he's not using the word that way. That's not what Jesus is saying. Let's think of the word offense in another way. Someone who is a criminal is a what? Offender. What did they do? They broke the law. What Paul says in the book of Romans, and we'll study this in greater detail when we get to the book of Romans, chapter 14, is this. Paul says, I will not put in front of my neighbor an occasion for them to break the law of God. He's not saying to them, I live my life in some kind of schizophrenia that I'm just worried all the time that somebody's going to see something I do and they're going to feel offended at me. That's not what he's saying. When Paul says, I will not eat meat if it makes my brother offend, what are you saying in this? There was meat being sacrificed in pagan temples and sold in the marketplace. Those pagan temples were not places that people went to worship Yahweh God. To get in touch with Jesus. They were places that people went to worship an idol. And they were also places where people went to be involved in temple prostitution and adultery. And this is what Paul is saying. If I buy that stake in the marketplace and someone sees me do it and they think because I'm doing that that I am putting a stamp of approval on the pagan temple down the road, 
then I will never buy this stake because I do not want them to fall into idolatry or adultery. That's what he's talking about. We'll get into that in greater detail when we get to chapter 14. What does this mean? Look with me in Isaiah chapter 8. This is where this is being quoted from. He says, you are to regard only the Lord of hosts as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. And he will be a sanctuary. But for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. He will be as a trap and as a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over these and they will fall and be broken, they will be snared, and they will be captured. That is the quote from Isaiah chapter 8. Notice with me Matthew chapter 21. Jesus has told a parable. It's about a vineyard that has been leased out to tenants, and those tenants are not paying for it, and they abuse the servants that are sent to gather what is owed. He asks them, a question. What's going to happen to these tenants? He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his produce at the harvest. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to a nation that produces its fruit. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they knew he was talking about them. They were looking for a way to arrest him. But they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. I want you to notice verse 44. He says of this stone, if you fall on the stone, you will be broken. But if that stone falls on you, you will be ground to powder. He's thinking of Daniel chapter 2. All the kingdoms of men on which the stone falls. My friend, God's not just wanting to save you to give you your best life now, to fulfill all your needs and to meet all your wants. God wants to save you to radically transform who you are. When he does so, when you come to the place where you put your life in the potter's hands to form you and to make you, he will break you. Have you been broken by him? Yeah. He does it in love. He does it out of mercy and grace. But he's transforming us. It's not fun. He breaks us. 
But if you choose to reject him and stumble over him, that stone will grind you to powder. And you will be like chaff that the wind will drive away. They're the only two alternatives. My friends, you don't get out of this game. You are here, and you've got to play this game. Not that it's a game. What I'm saying is this. You are in this life. And the decisions you make, the decisions I make, have real eternal consequences. You will either be broken by the Lord Jesus Christ and healed by him, because that's his work. He heals us. He will either do that work in you, or he will be your judge and pass verdict upon you and grind you to powder. You don't get a way out of that. It's one or the other. That's why he says at the end of this, and why I want to tie this together by just simply saying this, the preaching of the gospel has one of two effects in each life. It becomes either an occasion of your hardening and unbelief or of your faith and your salvation. And if you believe in him, you will never be put to shame. What is it about Jesus that men don't like? He was the kindest person. The most gracious man. He only went about doing good and loving, healing. What is it about Jesus that men don't like? Why do we stumble over this stone? Pride and prejudice. Our pride. Our prejudices. I I told you several months ago, I was down in Cheyenne at, at a conference that we were doing with the Wyoming Pastors Network, and we brought in Andrew Brunson, who was imprisoned in Turkey. And he talked about this thing with persecution. Persecution of Christians. One of the things he said was, how is persecution different than any other kind of suffering? Persecution is suffering, but how is it different? You know how it's different? You can get out of it. If you get cancer, you're going to go down that road. You're going to suffer that way. God's taking you that way. But you and I can make a choice on whether or not to get in trouble with people for being a Christian, for being a Christ follower. All we've got to do is shut up and say nothing. Right? Just go along. But Andrew Brunson brought up something that's very important. He said this, what was it about Jesus? What is it about Jesus that people don't like? Here's what he said. Number one, it is the exclusivity of his gospel. And secondly, it is the authority with which he commands our obedience. Jesus said what? One way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
you can believe in Jesus as long as you say what? Well, that's my truth. Your truth can be whatever you want to work for you. And that's okay in our culture. But you preach a Jesus that says this, I am the only way to heaven. That is not a Jesus people like. Second thing is what? He calls the shots. He calls the shots. He is Lord. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone over which men stumble. A rock that offends. But whoever, you hear that word? Whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. The message we hear, the gospel, will either be in your heart an occasion of unbelief and hardening or of faith and salvation. The same sun that hardens clay melts butter. Which are you? Let's pray. We thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, you are truly Lord. You are the potter, we are the clay. I pray that you would help us as individuals to put our lives in your hands, to trust you, to believe in you, to receive you as Lord, and thus be saved. Holy Spirit, we need you to do that work. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song together?
that you would take this word and as the Holy Spirit continues to convict us of areas of sin, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would mold us into your image, that we may be used of you. Lord, as seed that is planted, Lord, may we grow, may we be used by you in service to further your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>